Thanks a lot, Mike and Gary. Uh, good to see everyone. Thanks for joining us for our online gathering. My name is John. I'm, I'm one of the pastors at New Hope. It's been a little over 20 years. We just uh, commemorated the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. And if you're uh, older than 30, I'm guessing you remember where you were when the planes horrifically hit the towers that day. I remember exactly where I was. We were in Madison, Wisconsin, our first little house. My wife was on campus at UW-Madison taking classes. I had just finished a Bible study for college students, eating cereal, watching Sports Center, and then they cut away from Sports Center to share the tragic news. I quickly cut over to a news station and watched with the world in horror at what was happening. 9-11 totally changed our country. I, I'm not a historian. I'm not a sociologist. So I'm not going to get into that territory. Lots of books are, are written on that sub subject, but it certainly changed our country just like any other war. Uh, you go back to the Civil War, that changed our country. The the, fir the First World War, the Second World War, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, <clears throat> the Afghan War, which is now our longest war, they've all uh, changed our country. That's what war does. It, it shapes history. We live in a world uh, shaped by war. A new book just came out by uh, Oxford historian um, Margaret Macmillan called War, How Conflict Shaped Us. And here's what uh, Margaret says. If we fail to grasp how deeply entwined war and human society are, we're missing an important dimension of the human story. We cannot ignore war and its impact on the development of human society if we hope to understand our world and how we reach this point in history. I wholeheartedly agree. War is ingrained in our culture and our way of life. It's just in the water we swim in. It's in the air we breathe. Shakespeare used war as the backdrop or the frame of many of his plays on as he explored uh, human nature. War has been the catalyst for countless books. One of my favorite series of books, as many of you know, is Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. He, he was in, inspired, maybe inspired is not the right word, but his experience in the First World War was the catalyst for a lot of the scenes that he painted uh, in, in those books and a lot of the plot that he wrote. War is the subject of many of our most award-winning uh, and most watched films. There's been 1,300 movies made just on World War II alone. War is in our terminology. We use war terms in our everyday language. It's in our boardrooms, it's in uh, our athletic pursuits, it's in our leadership books. We use war tactics as we talk about how to lead companies and, and sports teams. When I was a kid, I played with toy soldiers. Maybe a lot of you did. Uh, my favorite board game growing up was Risk. Uh, the most popular, or one of the most popular series of games out today is uh, Call of Duty which is a first-person shooter game based on World War II. The whole series uh, to date has sold 300 million copies. Most of us, thankfully, have not experienced war firsthand. So at least my experience is you, you can tend to keep it at a distance. At times, we can even romanticize war, and we should never, ever romanticize war. There's nothing romantic about it. If you know anyone that has ever been in real combat, um, maybe they're younger, but quite possibly they're older, and you have an opportunity ever to, to talk with them, ask them what their experience was in combat and war. They may not answer because it, it has been so traumatizing uh, and, and really reshaped their life, but if they do choose to answer, tell them thanks for their sacrifice and then listen, and they may say a lot of things. Here was what they'll tell you. It's not romantic at all. They'll tell you that war is horrific, 
And war's horrific. Even those wars we might deem as the most just wars, it's horrific because there's a, a huge cost to war. Some of us estimated in human history, uh, up to a billion people have died in warfare. It's costly to human life. It's costly to civilians. Their, their lives are, are unraveled, and many of them are homeless and beaten and bombed and tortured. It's, it's harmless to, to children. Uh, millions of children have died or been misplaced in war. To date, presently, there's 300,000 child soldiers in the world. And war is just costly. Uh, last year, 2019, you can buy in all the military expenses of all the nations of the world. Get ready for it. $2 trillion, $2 trillion. You'd like to think that it's getting better. It's not getting better. 92% of human history, 92% of all the years combined that we can track in human history, we've been at war, 92%. Since 1945, there's not been one year that we haven't been at war. In the deadliest century, uh, deaths connected to warfare was the 20th century. War is with us, war will continue to be with us. We live in a world shaped by war, and it's not supposed to be that way. And thankfully, as we'll talk about today, one day it, it won't be that way. We're in a series, uh, an Advent series called The Carols of Christmas. Last year, uh, last week we launched our Advent series as Advent started, hopefully you're leaning into the season. Many of you picked up our Advent kits, and our team just knocked it out of the park, I think. Well done, team. I had nothing to do with it. They just did an absolutely fantastic job. So if you didn't get a physical Advent kit, I, I believe most of those resources are available online. And even if you missed the first Sunday, lean in. There's never been a year that we need to lean into Advent uh, more than right now. And it's super easy to set up an Advent uh, wreath, and you just basically need five candles. And as we go through this Advent series, each uh, week we join with followers of Jesus all over the world and we light candles to commemorate a certain theme of Advent. Last week we commemorated the theme of hope and we looked at the Christmas uh, carol. Um, I'm, I'm totally blanking. Go tell it on the mount. Yes, such a fantastic sermon. I totally forgot it. If you missed that, you can go back and check out Go Tell It on the Mountain. It's a really uh, provocative, awesome story behind it. And this week we're looking, at, as we light the candle, we're looking at the theme of peace. And we're going to explore um, one of my favorite carols, uh, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And maybe you're familiar with it, maybe you're not, but we're going we're gonna to dive in. So let's start with those lyrics of I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Here we go. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. You'll notice that line keeps getting repeated. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black, accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, 
with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Beautiful song. Uh, one of my favorite. What jumps out at you is you're just listening to them, and maybe you're very familiar with the carol. Maybe you heard it once or twice. Maybe you, you had never heard the lyrics or thought about it. But as you think about it, what jumps out? I think what jumps out to me is it's not very Christmassy. I don't know if that's a word, Christmassy. The most Christmassy thing about it is, is the title. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, and then you look at that line that's repeated, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. The author is clearly connecting uh, his poetry to Luke 2, and we know that scene well, and that's certainly Christmassy, but he assumes we know the Christmas story. When you read through the lyrics, uh, there's no there's no Mary, there's no Joseph, there's no manger, there's no baby Jesus. <laughs> so as we look for like those checkpoints on classic Christmas carols, it's it's missing in this. But most of the verses, if you read through them, and we'll get into them here, are talking about uh, the destructive nature and the horror of war. How, as we talked about at the top, how war is shaped uh, history. But it's also talking about and we'll really dig into this, how the Christmas story comes into a war-torn world and illuminates it and gives the hope uh, of peace. Uh, so we need to get the context, and each week as we read the lyrics, then we'll talk about the story behind the song, and then we'll kind of dig into to, to how it's contextualized and founded on on scripture. So where did this song come from? It's it's the lyrics from the song are from a, a poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He uh, was born in 1807, and during that time period, he, he died at the latter part of that century. He was uh, America's most well-known and celebrated and popular poet. He was actually one of America's first celebrities. He was known all over the world. Uh, Longfellow's first wife died, and his second wife uh, was named Frances Appleton. He called her Franny. Uh, 1861 was an incredible, incredibly difficult year for the for the Longfellow family. Uh, 1861, April of that year, the first shots of the Civil War uh, were fired, and then later that year in July, Franny was cutting the curls of their seven-year-old little girl, and she wanted to save them, so she was sealing them in hot wax, and some of the hot wax dripped on her on her dress and it ignited and she ignited and was engulfed in flames. She ran into the study where Henry was, was working uh, to, to safeguard the children. He threw a rug on her, that didn't put it out. Then he threw himself on her and even used his hands to put out uh, the flames. Franny was, was badly uh, burned and tragically succumbed to her injuries uh, the next day. Henry was also badly burned, and uh, a lot of the area of his face and his cheeks were born, uh, burned, and that's why he, he grew that classic beard that if you know uh, him and know his face, uh, it's connected with that, that, that beard. Henry dropped into deep, deep uh, depression. He was so depressed, he thought that they were going to send him to, to an asylum. He was really, really struggling, and, and rightly so. Uh, in uh, the first Christmas after Franny's death, Henry wrote, uh, how inexpressibly sad are the holidays. That's Christmas 1961. The next Christmas he wrote, uh, I can make no record of these days. Better leave them wrapped in silence. Perhaps Sunday God will give me peace. His journal entry for that year read, a Merry Christmas say the children, but that is no more for me. Uh, 19, uh, or 1863, two years after Franny's death, it wasn't getting much better. They're still engulfed in the Civil War of the country. And his, uh, Henry's oldest son, Charlie, had six children, uh, took off and uh, without permission of his dad and traveled 500 miles to, to join Abraham Lincoln's uh, Union Army. 
Uh, when he arrived, people recognized uh, who his dad was, and so quickly sent letters making sure that it was okay. They accepted his son into the army, and, and uh, Henry reluctantly agreed. Uh, Charlie quickly showed expertise in warfare and was promoted to officer, and, and he joined the military with kind of that romantic uh, notion, but that, that quickly subsided as he actually got into war. And he wrote uh, many letters home to his dad, and uh, this is a line from one of them. They may talk about the gaiety of a soldier's life, but it strikes me as pretty earnest work when shells are ripping and tearing your men to pieces. Uh, in December 1863, Henry received an urgent telegram that Charlie had been severely wounded, shot through his left shoulder. The bullet had come within an inch of his spine. He, he was that close to being fully paralyzed, but he was in tough, tough shape. Uh, Charlie was carried away and housed at, this is an interesting fact, New Hope Church in Virginia. And then he was rushed to the hospital where, where uh, Henry traveled to be by his side. Uh, Charlie would live, but his, his recovery would be long and arduous, and he would always have remnants of that injury. On Christmas Day of that year, the, the month that Charlie got shot, Henry would write the poem Christmas Bells, which would become uh, the carol, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Uh, again, to repeat this verse, he's clearly speaking of the horror and the cost of war. Henry writes, And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But as you read it, and particularly as we get to, to the last verse, there is resident hope of the peace that will come. And that, that hope is founded in, in the truth of, of Scripture. And we'll, we'll dig into that in just a second. Henry's original poem uh, had seven stanzas, but when it was made into a song, two of those stanzas were cut. And in 1872, an English organist put it to a melody. Uh, in 1956, um, a musician named Johnny Marks put it to a new melody that, that when you hear it, you might be familiar with, with that melody. And then Bing Crosby uh, famously sang, and it became a big hit. Uh, over 60 uh, times, over 60 musicians have recorded the song with, with 5 million uh, sales. Uh, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day is not the only classic Christmas carol that is talking about the horrors of war. We already sang one today. It came upon a midnight clear that was written by Edmund Sears, again, a poem uh, about the aftermath of the Mexican-American uh, War. Uh, Sears wrote that song, Like Longfellow. Uh, Sears references that, that line that of angels' glorious song of old, pointing to the scene in Luke 2, pointing to the, the hope of the peace that would come uh, in this one that was promised. Uh, neither of these songs, again, are very... Christmassy at all in the classic sense, but I'll argue they're incredibly Christmassy. What can be more Christmassy than the hope of peace that comes from the promised one in the midst of a war-torn uh, world? Like last week' uh, song, um, we uh, the, the 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 lyrics are based on the prophet Isaiah. And this is not uh, atypical. Uh, Isaiah talked a ton about the one who has come called uh, the Messiah. Isaiah talks so much about it. I Isaiah's uh, book is called the, the Fifth Gospel. Uh, so let's read a portion from Isaiah. Maybe you've never heard anything from Isaiah, but if you have heard something from Isaiah, perhaps it's this passage. This is one of the most quoted passages. And Gary Walker, uh, from uh, who's coming over from Mount Scott to be part of our church. Gary, we're, we're so glad you're part of our church. Gary will be reading it for us. Take it away, Gary.
Gary. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 5 through 7. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thanks so much, Gary. Again, we really are grateful you're, you're part of, of our church. Uh, the prophet Isaiah, again, uh, Isaiah wrote 700 years before the birth of Jesus. That's, that's probably important information as he talks about this one who has come that we, we know is, is Jesus. Um, during Isaiah's time, the Assyrian Empire was the massive dominant military force uh, laying siege to the world, and, and uh, the Hebrew people were, were no different. The backdrop of Isaiah, a lot of Isaiah's writings, are the threat, the coming uh, Assyrian military besieging uh, God's people, and they were consistently not turning to God. They were turning to, to false gods, and they were turning the wrong direction. That was the genesis of a lot of Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah it talked a lot about the current times that he was in, talked directly to his people about the Assyrians and about putting their hope in God. But at the same time, Isaiah talked a lot about this one, the Messiah, literally in the Hebrew, the anointed one who would come. This Messiah, Isaiah tells us a ton about the Messiah, the Messiah would, would be on David's throne, but would be way greater than David, and he would rule eternally, and he would bring God's rule and reign to this earth in ways that we could never fathom or imagine, and ultimately uh, bringing Peace. So picture the people reading this, thinking of the one that was, would come as this massive Assyrian army is crouched uh, at their doorstep. The Hebrew people, uh, just like most of the people at the time, were military people. They resolved their disputes with uh, power and force and bloodshed. They expected this Messiah that Isaiah talked about to do the same. They expected kind of like a, a Braveheart type figure coming to set them free from the Assyrians. Uh, they would be very surprised. Uh, Isaiah tells them, and it reference back to, to the verses that, that Gary read before. So if you want to look uh, and go to the, the scripture portion, if you're on our online gathering or just pull it up on your phone, we're in Isaiah 9. If you look at verse 5, uh, Isaiah is going to give them a surprise. The victory that will come, the peace that will come is not through military might and power. That would be a huge shock to them and probably still a shock to us in a world that's totally shaped by war. Here's what Isaiah said. It's pretty, uh, pretty poetic language. He says, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for fire. If we can bring it into our, our, our time and space, Isaiah would be like every tank, every fighter jet, every drone, every bomb, every AK-47 will be all rolled up and burned. We're not going to need them anymore. And so the people's right response and our right response is like, well, what's going to bring peace? That's like the only way we know how to get to peace. And Isaiah is like, it's not going to happen that way. And then Isaiah shocks us even more. And he says, it's going to come through a baby, a baby son who will bring peace. It's not what they expected. It's not what we expect. And then Isaiah begins to talk about this baby son that will one day come, this Messiah, this anointed one that will rule and reign and bring peace. 
and he begins to fill in details and give us a picture, uh, a sketch of who this baby son Messiah will be. He tells us the government will be upon his shoulders. That's a weird phrase. We could literally translate that, the weight of the world will be on his shoulders. The one that comes will bear the weight of the world, every burden, every heavy thing the world's ever born. This baby son will take it and put it on its sho- on his shoulders. And then Isaiah gives us these four descriptive phases of what this Messiah will look like. And maybe you've heard them read at Christmas time before. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. And then here's the one that we want to talk about today. Prince of Peace. And I think this is what uh, Edmund Sears and it came upon a midnight clear and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow and I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day are thinking about when they when they write in a war-torn time of the peace that will come that this one will be the Prince of Peace. Now when we think about peace, we think and kind of define peace in our minds and hearts as the absence of conflict or the absence of war. And that's just a small part of what this Hebrew word for peace means. It's a word that you might be familiar about. We talk about it a good bit here. It's the word shalom. And it means way more than just the absence of conflict or the absence of war. It means literally uh, completeness or wholeness or uh, it's used uh, in in ways in the Hebrew of, of, uh, of a brick that's missing from a wall. And when that brick is replaced, there's shalom. It's complete. It's whole. Or when one sheep is missing from a flock and that sheep is returned, that's shalom. It's complete. It's whole. We love Legos in the Rose and Steel home. I've shared that before. We have an entire room of our house pretty much devoted to Legos. So when you open up a new Lego set, it's not shalom. There's just pieces everywhere. But as you follow the directions and you put it together and you put that last piece in, that's a moment of shalom. That's the idea of the word. My favorite uh, definition of shalom is from theologian uh, Cornelius Plantiga. He says, shalom is the full flourishing of human life in all respects. It's the way God intended it to be. And then I love this line. He says, it's the way things ought to be. Shalom is the way things ought to be. When we use shalom in the context of relationship, if I were to use it um, in the context of my relationship with you or your relationship with someone else, it's, it's often used in the sense of that all is well, all is well between us. When David came and checked on his brothers when they were at that battle before he fought Goliath, he greeted them with a variation of the term. He said, Hashalom. And it, what he's asking is, is all well? Hashalom. And so in a relational context, it means we're good. There's nothing between us. There's no division. There's no strife. There's no animosity. We're just good, and we've been there at in relationship with one another. I think we know uh, what that is. So biblical peace is not just the absence of conflict or war. It's a very small piece of it. Biblical peace is completeness, wholeness, flourishing. It's when all is well. It's, it's the way things ought to be. So this baby son that Isaiah is talking about, this long-awaited Messiah who will come, his reign, his everlasting reign, will be marked by peace increasingly or by shalom. This baby son, this Messiah, will, 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 will take everything that's broken or lost and repair it and restore it and make it whole and provide flourishing with all and restore all things the way God intended, the way things ought to be. Uh, and, and then Isaiah tells us at the very end, uh, back to Isaiah 9, that this reign of shalom will never end. And then he asks kind of a rhetorical question, 
who, who can accomplish all of this? And then he answers for us, the Lord Almighty. Uh, Edmund Sears, going back to the song we sang at the top, it came upon a midnight clear. Uh, his, the words that we sing have changed a little bit from the original poem that he wrote. And, I, and I'm pulling this verse from the original poetry, and I love how Edmund Sears says it. He says, for lo, the days are hastening on by prophet bards foretold, when with the ever circling years comes round the age of gold when peace shall over all the earth its ancient splendors fling and the whole world give back the song which now the angels sing. The connection to Luke 2, just like last week. Both songs are connecting to Luke 2. That's the genesis of our hope, the coming of the one in Luke 2, the coming uh, of Jesus. And the angels sing, Edmund Sears says, what, what did they sing that first Christmas? We, we probably know if we've heard the Christmas. This is, Luke says, today in the town of David, a savior is born to you. He is Christ the Lord heavy messianic language. Luke does not want his audience to miss the fact that he's saying Jesus born in that manger in Bethlehem is the one, is the baby son, is the prince of peace that Isaiah talked about 700 years before. And then uh, Luke quotes the song the angels were singing, glory to God in the highest and on earth what? Peace, shalom. uh, Luke is telling us, Uh, Henry is telling us, Edmund is telling us that Jesus is the peacemaker. Jesus is the peacemaker. This idea of shalom and peace, it just runs throughout Scripture as a central theme. You can't escape it. The word in Hebrew and the similar word in Greek is used 550 times. We can't evade it even if we tried. And this idea that Jesus is the peacemaker, Jesus is the one that will inaugurate and bring to realization shalom in our hearts and our lives and our relationship with God and others, we can't escape that either. Uh, Shortly before his death, in case we were trying to escape it and not attach to Jesus, Jesus will let us do that. Jesus says in John 14, 27, Shalom I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So then he goes through the cross and then he merges the other side, risen and victorious. And when he encounters his disciples, what's the first thing he says to him? He says, shalom to you, peace to you. He doesn't want us to visit. Jesus is, is the peacemaker. Uh, Paul and, and the writers after Jesus won't let us evade this idea of Jesus as the peacemaker either. When Paul's writing to the churches at Colossae, Philippi, Rome, on and on and on, he's continually talking about the work of Jesus brings shalom with God, brings peace with God. Here's a couple instances from Colossians. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making what? Peace through his blood shed on the cross. Shalom. And then uh, in Ephesians, Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our what? Shalom. He's our peace who has made the two groups into one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Uh, Paul concludes for us that Jesus is the the, the peacemaker. Jesus is the only one who can bring to realization this completeness and this wholeness, this restoration of what is broken and lost. He's the only one that can provide flourishing for the world. He's the only one that can make all things well the way things ought to be. So our mission at New Hope is, is to follow Jesus 
and share his love. And those of you joining and coming on board with us and uh, as one church from, from Mount Scott, you're probably just getting to know that. I, I pre- preached to, you, to all of you a couple weeks ago on that. But our mission, what we're called to do each and every day, is to follow Jesus and share his love. So if Jesus is the peacemaker, what does that mean for those, those of us who are trying to follow him? It means that, that we're called to be peacemakers as well. And again, there's no ambiguity in Scripture. Jesus doesn't leave us any wiggle room on this. In his kind of first stretch of speeches and sermons and talks that we call the Sermon on the Mount, right at the beginning of that is this foundational piece of the sermon we call the Beatitudes. And as Jesus lists the Beatitudes, he's not giving us things we need to do to enter the kingdom of God. He's giving us characteristics of people who are in the kingdom of God, who are kingdom inhabitants. Inhabitants, And here's what he says in Matthew 5, 9. This is one of the characteristics of those of us who inhabit the kingdom of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. When people see us peacemaking, uh, they say, oh, (laughs) they're God's children. That's, that's, That's who they are. But the opposite is true as well. When they see us not peacemaking and peace breaking, they're wondering if we're children of God. So just a question to ponder, as people look at uh, followers of Jesus and, and the church, uh, uh, do they think, oh, they're, they're peacemakers? You don't have to answer that. <laughs> Awkward question. Uh, maybe even a, a more vulnerable question, when people look at your life and my life, do they say, oh, yeah, they're, they're peacemakers or not? And that's the question uh, this song, Henry's poetry, uh, Isaiah, Luke 2, causes us as we follow the peacemaker to wrestle with. Are we, as we follow the peacemaker, peacemakers as well? Uh, years ago when our girls were, were smaller, uh, we liked doing puzzles, and I'd always bring home new, new puzzles for them. And I, I, had, I had one. I can't exactly remember which puzzle it was, but I was really excited about it. It was brand new and, and, and brought it home, and they, they just wanted to do it right then. So we broke open the box. And we put it all together. So, you know, an initial puzzle is not shalom. It's the opposite of shalom. It's like chaos. But as <clears throat> you're putting the puzzle together, you're like peacemaking. You're, you're putting together shalom. And it's coming together, coming together. And, and they're younger, so it wasn't a very complex puzzle. And I was so excited. I think it was like Christmas theme, actually. And, uh, you know, to have it out and be done. And then the horror of horrors. You know what happened. You get to the end and you're missing a piece. Like we were missing one piece. <laughs> it wasn't like an edge piece. It was like right at the middle, like one of the characters' faces. And and I'm like, oh no. And so we're looking everywhere and we're looking on the floor. And I mean, I searched for that puzzle piece. And then I look over uh, at our golden retriever who's just looking at us and staring. And and our golden tree looked really sheepish and like embarrassed and shame on the face. And I knew. And I was like, drop it. And our golden, he opened his mouth and like the wet, slimy, half-eaten puzzle piece emerged and he dropped it on the floor. So I was like, oh no, what am I going to do? So I really wanted to finish this thing. So the girls went to bed and I spent that evening finding cardboard and markers and I tried to recreate that puzzle piece to fit exactly it. So when the girls got up, I could be like, shalom, it's done. And uh, and I did it. And I was really proud of my handiwork. <clears throat> and, and that is what peacemaking or shalom making looks like. We're, we're invested in making it right and completing and making it whole. Now, I'm not very artistic, so uh, our girls and my wife still make fun of, of me for that, that puzzle piece. And when we get the box out, there, there's no end of hearing it. But that is exactly what shalom looks like. When we see something missing or incomplete or not right, as followers of Jesus, 
we're to be in there, we're to be invested, we're to be using all the gifts and the opportunity we've been given to, <clears throat> to actually make it right. So are we known as peacemakers, as followers of Jesus? Are you known, am I known and as peacemakers? The earliest followers of Jesus were absolutely known as peacemakers. Uh, we can go to the catacombs again, and we learn much of what they drew on the walls of the catacombs where uh, they, they would bury one another and have worship services when they were being persecuted. And one of the dominant images is a dove with an olive branch. That's the genesis of the olive branch peace idea. It was their symbol for peace. The earliest followers of Jesus were very much uh, peacemakers. Before we conclude, I need to make this distinction, and it's a really important distinction, and, and it might be one that as you go away from this message today, it's the thing you take away and you're really wrestling with in your own journey with Jesus. The distinction is this. We're called to be peacemakers, not peacekeepers. We're called to be peacemakers, not peacekeepers. When we think of peacekeepers, we probably think of the United Nations peacekeeping force, and, and they do good and needed work. But they have a very narrow mission as peacekeepers. They'll go into war-torn areas, and they're essentially uh, going into warfare, making sure mass genocide doesn't happen. Uh, so th they, uh, they are going in to keep the peace, not make the peace. And that's a really important distinction. Uh, peacekeepers, some qualities of peacekeepers, Peacekeepers um, are looking to establish dividing lines and maintain them, not heal them and, and do, do away with them. Uh, peacekeepers keep people who are fighting apart so they don't kill each other. And again, in certain instances, that's, it's really important. Peacekeepers uh, don't seek reconciliation. They seek order. They're not looking to bring people together. They're, they're, they're trying to maintain order. Peacekeepers don't want to rock the boat. They don't like to move towards conflict. They want to keep everyone happy. Peacekeepers, when they think of peace, they think of that original really narrow definition of peace, that peace is just the absence of conflict or war. That's peacekeeping. Not bad, but not what we're called to do as followers of Jesus. That would be easy, relatively. We're not called to be peacekeepers. We're called to be peacemakers. And that's way more difficult. Uh, peace, peacemakers, um, they, they enter war zones literally and relationally, not seeking to establish and maintain dividing lines, but looking to do away with them and, and to bring the warring people, uh, those who are divided together. It's a totally different thing. Uh, peacemakers, um, they understand that for true peace to happen, Sometimes the original peace that's being maintained needs to be abolished, and you kind of got to get underneath what's going on and dig deep, and it's going to be messier for a while before it gets better. Uh, peacemakers are ruthlessly committed to telling the truth. Peacemakers are always fighting for that brave and vulnerable space where you can have honest and safe conversations. Uh, Peacemakers, uh, uh, they seek to build environments where everyone, even when, when they're in a state of division, can flourish and be made whole. And most importantly, peacemakers uh, understand that peacemaking is costly. It, 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 it's, it, it, 
they, they understand that they're going to have to, as a peacemaker, enter into a tough situation and give and sacrifice and put them their own selves uh, at, at risk. Peacemakers are sold out to what the Apostle Paul told the Corinthian church, I think in 2 Corinthians 5, they're sold out to the ministry and the message of reconciliation. Author Ken Sand, uh, I think the name of his book is, is actually Peacemakers. And he says we fall into three categories. We're either peace breakers, we're peace keepers, or we're peacemakers. Uh, it's unequivocally true from Scripture that we're called to be, as Jesus says in Matthew 5, 9, peacemakers. And, and that's a question that, you, that I want to challenge you to wrestle with this week as we enter into this Advent season and we're in it, and I'm going to wrestle with it. As we go into the, the course of our daily lives and our relationships with people in a world that's at war literally in some places, but at war uh, theoretically and politically and relationally and socially in so many different ways, are we going to be peace breakers? Oh, God forbid. Are we going to be key? Peacekeepers just kind of stay at a distance, not rock the boat, don't want to really get involved. Are we going to follow Jesus, who was the peacemaker, who is the peacemaker, and be peacemakers ourselves? Imagine the difference that could bring to our church, our community, uh, and our world. We, we live in a world shaped by war. I think that it's hard to argue anything differently. We live in a world that's often the antithesis uh, of peace. But in this world, we find comfort and hope in the promise, especially this Advent season, as we look back and remember, but we also look forward to Jesus's return, uh, that Jesus is not only the peacemaker, but Jesus is our peacemaker. Jesus, uh, through his work on the cross for us, Paul says, reconciled us to God, brought us together, made us whole, restored what was broken, brought us to a place of flourishing the way God intended it to be, the way things ought to be between us and God now all is well. And Paul says that the gospel and the work of Jesus on the cross has also reconciled us to one another, that all can be well with us even when we disagree, even when there's stuff in our past and then there's difficult things and it takes work, but there's hope in a world that's war-torn uh, because of the peacemaker. Uh, so as you, as you light your Advent candle today or tonight, and please do, Gather, whether you're doing it alone, whether you're doing it with friends, whether you're doing it with life group, family, have a moment <clears throat> and light that candle. And remember as we light the peace candle that you follow the peacemaker who, who, who Henry knew and Edmund Sears knew and Isaiah knew and Luke knew that will one day come and bring shalom. And even now through us as church is bringing shalom as we are peacemakers. And let's uh, remember, uh, as we light that candle, the last verse of Henry uh, Wadworth Longfellow's magnificent song, which ends on this incredible theme of hope in the midst of despair. Uh, Henry writes, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Let me pray. God, thanks for the fact that you sent <clears throat> the peacemaker. We live in this world, God, that is ravaged by war. And beyond the military conflicts that have dominated history and dominated our lives, 
Uh, there's just a sense of war. We know the evil ones out there warring against us, and we see humans and organizations and and governments and and groups just warring against each other. It just feels so antagonistic right now, God. And in the midst of that, we light the peace candle, and we don't light it in false optimism. We light it in hope of the one who came, the one who will return, the one who is the peacemaker, and the one who has called those of us who follow him to be peacemakers in our world. We need your help, God. I don't have that capacity in and of myself. And so we need you, God, to equip us through the power of your spirit to enter our worlds today and by your grace for your glory, make peace, make shalom. Uh, We pray uh, with all of God's people, come Lord Jesus this Advent season. Uh, We pray in his name. And all God's people said, amen.